This morning we are in Acts 23, starting in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And it was disclosed to me that there, was, there would be a plot against the man. I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So if you're new um, with us at the Park Church, this is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through uh, the book of Acts, and we're drawing to a, a close here uh, in Acts, and we'll finish Acts 23 uh, this morning. So if you have your Bible, keep it open on your lap. And, and I'm not going to necessarily walk this uh, passage through verse by verse, but we're going we're gonna to take a look at this um, on, on a couple different levels. And uh, the first thing I want to point out, like, like I mentioned last week a little bit, we are in heavy narrative, okay? Meaning that Luke, the author of Acts, is just kind of telling the story as it is. Very little commentary, just fact after fact after detail after detail after detail. However, one of the things in this section of Scripture, verse 12 through 35 of Acts 23, uh, I want you to notice uh, there's, there's, there's a detail missing. Did you notice something in here that's missing? To almost every other passage, every other chapter that we have covered in the book of Acts, there's something missing in this one. There's no mention of the name God. Lord, Jesus, Spirit, 
Holy Spirit? Nothing. It's just details. Paul was here. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's very reminiscent of the book of Esther. If you know your Bibles, the book of Esther, the entire book does not mention the the name of God explicitly. Does that mean, I want to ask you a question, because God's name explicitly is absent, that God is absent from the story. Here in Acts 23, verses 12 through uh, 35, does a failure to mention the Spirit, Jesus, God, Lord, mean that he's absent? And I think most of you are going, well, no. But, but we're in Acts. I mean, even our subtitle to this is Acts of the Holy Spirit. Surely, like, did Luke miss something? Why, why, why would there not be the, the mention of God's name? Well, we're going to unpack that here in a second. But as we just all admitted, I think that, no, God is still present and active. Do we really believe that? Think about it in our lives. I think there is a tendency in most of us to think that God isn't working, moving, or answering when we don't see visible signs of his movement. True? But the point I want to make up front, and I'll continue to reiterate this, is that we should never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. That God's quiet, invisible hand is always at work. God's quiet, invisible hand is always at work. You see, this is what is seen throughout Scripture. In fact, I would argue the most. The stories we know are these spectacular ones, rightfully so. These historical uh, Stories with great magnitude, right? Creation in Genesis, the the flood, the exodus, the reign of King David, the exile, the rebuilding of the temple, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Even in the book of Acts, what do we we see or what do we remember? We remember these these scenes with with so much power. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls and it's like tongues of fire and, and people begin to speak in other tongues. Or Paul finds himself in prison at another time and what happens? The earth quakes. And prison doors fling open and we're like, yeah, that's the movement of God. Like God is in that. But what about all of the other moments throughout the pages of scripture and even here in Acts where they just seem to be obscure details? You ever wonder that? Like how many Levites were the descendants of Yeshua and Cadmiel that returned to the land after Cyrus's decree in the Old Testament? Right? 74, by the way, right? Ezra chapter 2, verse 40, right? Like, why is that in the pages of Scripture? Have you ever read the book of Numbers? Right? You know what it's about? Yeah, good, good. Some of you are like, what? No, tell me. Numbers, read the title, and then you've got the book, right? Like, why those details? Why the the minutiae? Why the seemingly obscurity? Why does God think it important? To include such seemingly random, seemingly sometimes insignificant people all over the Bible. You see, we're getting here to this last part of the book of Acts. And really, this message sets up where we'll go over the next five chapters to close out Acts. And what's going to appear at first glance to be inconsequential? Almost a travel log, right? Of these details, Paul went from here to here, from this leader to that leader. He made this defense that we've already heard time and time again. Like, why has Luke chosen, the author of Acts, to give us this detail? Sam mentioned when he taught a couple weeks ago 
that the book, that this book would have been written on parchment paper that Luke had. There wasn't an endless supply of parchment paper, right? Like there was some logistics here. Like why would the Spirit inspire Luke to include this story on a limited amount of parchment paper? Why is it so important? What are we supposed to draw out of this? And I think it's this. That God guides every detail of human history in order to fulfill his promises. That God guides every detail of human history in order to fulfill his promises. The incredible, the, the, the ones with these hist- the highest historical magnitude, whatever you would assign that to, to the most obscure and mundane, God guides every detail of human history in order to fulfill his promises. And if we can learn that from Luke and the way he relates these events in the latter part of Paul's life, maybe, just maybe, we will learn to see God in the details of our own lives. In those ordinary, mundane, monotonous details, in the good and the bad, that God does guide every single detail of our lives as Christ followers in order to fulfill his promises to us. He guides every detail. Now let's specifically look at this text. Let's look at how, if that is true, right? Scripture better interpret scripture, right? Then we need to see that movement and that operation in this text. Let's look specifically at this text. What was God's promise to Paul, right? If God is in every detail to accomplish his promise, what was his, his promise to Paul? Well, he gave Paul a pretty specific one in, in Acts chapter uh, 23, verse 11. So one verse, up from where Alexia read. Look at it. Here's God's promise to Paul. The following night, the Lord stood by him. He was in prison. He's still in prison and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. What is the Lord Jesus standing by Paul, encouraging Paul, telling him he's going to do his promise to him that he's going to Rome, that he's going to testify to the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome. Now, what are the details that God uses to accomplish that? That's what we're going to see over the next several weeks. But even in this one, to get him out of Jerusalem, he's still in Jerusalem. Very violent place, a lot of struggle, a lot of pain happening to Paul. How is Jesus going to deliver Paul to Rome? It begins here. It begins in these verses that we just unpacked. And so what I want you to see is how while God's name, right? Jesus, God, Lord, Holy Spirit is not mentioned. The thread of his activity is all over it. So how did God fulfill this promise? And, and I'm going to show you my notes like I did in the 9 a.m. Because I actually missed this when I first studied. Like where, where does God's movement start in this passage? I jumped to the nephew but I missed where God's movement actually started. And so I had to add it here in handwriting this morning, just so you guys know, I'm not just like being a preacher and making stuff up. Okay. Like I straight up missed the first one. It starts in verse 12. Let's look at it. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Where does God's movement to fulfill his promise in Paul's life to get him to Rome begin? It doesn't start with the nephew thwarting the plan. It starts by raising up 40 plus Jews who want to kill Paul. See, we have this weird Christian, I would say weird Western Christian way of thinking 
to not believe that God raises up, even though the Bible tells us, the wicked and destruction for his purposes and his glory, to fulfill his plan. So even here, right at the beginning with Paul and getting him to Rome, he raises up these 40 very angry Jews who are trying to murder Paul. And, and, and the vow that they took to not eat or drink until he was killed should tell you how quickly they wanted to kill Paul. Like this wasn't something that they were going to plan for like six months. It just, like, they weren't going to not eat or drink for six months. They were thinking immediate. Like we're going to take his life immediately. And God is orchestrating this, right? God is planning this. So this is the very thing that gets him out of Jerusalem, right? So God will use things that the enemy means for destruction, for his glory and for our good to accomplish his purposes and his plans. You believe that? I see it here in, in Acts 23. God is using this. Well, how did he use this? All of a sudden, the next way you see God's, God's movement in this passage, all of a sudden, one of uh, uh, Paul's family members show up, right? Random, chance, right? Chance, luck. We know nothing about Paul's family. The scriptures speak nothing about Paul's family other than most scholars believe that they were severed after Paul's conversion. However, what we hear from Acts 23 is that he had a sister and that sister had a son. And this nephew, just by chance, wouldn't you know it, overheard, overheard this plan by this 40 plus Jew, this little militia who wanted to kill, kill Paul and take his life. He heard their plan and he brings it to Paul. So where is the plan discovered? Right? Not by Paul, not by some just, just random person, but by his nephew. And, and it gets even crazier than that. Probably by a young, he's probably a young boy or a tween, right? And you say, where do you get that? Well, it's how the, 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 tribune, uh, the tribune kind of receives him. Verse 19, it says that they took him by the hand. So in, in first century, they wouldn't do that with an adult. The, those who they took by the hand were kids or children. So think about this. Who overheard the plan to kill his, his uncle, this nephew, this little boy? And what does he do? He comes back and he reports. Do you not see how God is like orchestrating and moving all these things? Like the most improbable, unlikely way to get Paul into Rome is by raising up these Jews who want to kill him. The plan is overheard by a small boy, maybe even more unlikely, a teenager, right? Somebody in between, you know, a teen and, and a kid. And he hears and he reports it back accurately to Paul. That's incredible. Like, do you see God's movement in that? And then it goes even further. Like, God's not done in this story, okay? Like, God's not done in his movement. And so he then brings this message to Paul. Paul goes, hey, you need to tell the authorities. Like, why in the world would Paul trust the authorities? Like, why would he trust Lysias? Why would he trust anybody who this young kid is going to tell? Because it's his only hope. This is his only shot, Right? And so this little boy goes and he tells Lysias. And Lysias then becomes an instrument of God fulfilling God's purpose and plan toward Paul. Right? Lysias, this very confused, kind of waffling, power-hungry soldier. And we get that because of the way that he wrote to Felix the governor. It was kind of like a brown-nosing letter. In fact, there were things in that letter, as, as Alexia read there, that were very untrue. Like, like the statement in um, verse 29. He's writing to, to, uh, to, to the governor, Felix. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. If that's true, Lysias, why is he in prison? Right? 
Like, why have you had him in prison? Anyway, God's still going to use him, right? As much as he might be brown-nosing and, and for all the wrong reasons, he's going to use him to get Paul out of Jerusalem and toward Rome. And then what is Lysias in his power? What does he have the ability to do? He has the ability to transport Paul safely. There's a group hearing. And listen, if they hear that this boy has told, you bet they're going to rise up immediately and go after Paul. But Lysias, knowing this, what does he do? He surrounds Paul with a straight up army. That's verse 23. Hundreds and hundreds of soldiers around Paul. Why? To make sure he safely leaves Jerusalem and gets to where he's going on his way to Rome. This is incredible. Like, do you see God's orchestration? Do you see God's hand and the thread work that God is doing in this? He now has an army to transport him, that God uses ordinary means for provision to fulfill his promises. And then this letter reaches Felix, this governor. Listen, this guy, this guy's not a follower of Jesus, right? He's evil. He's wicked. He's, he's with Rome, like, right, the, the law and order, all, all these things. He could have very much been like, I don't want that guy. Don't bring him over here. Like, keep him back there in Jerusalem. Like, you deal with the problem over there. But what did God sovereignly do? He moved. And wicked man's heart. Why? Because God is using all things to accomplish his promise and his plans. And nothing can stop it. So why do we need to know these details? Like this letter to this person, this movement, these soldiers, this number. Because this is how God works. This is how God works to fulfill his promises. Hear me. God is in the details. These details, I think, are not included in scripture just to to fill pages. Just to fill, um, you know... Uh, scripts. They're in pages of scripture purposely for our good to see who our God truly is, that God really is a God who cares about the minute details because he's in them. You see, there's a theological word for this. It's the word providence. Providence. Now, I want to talk about providence for just a second. And you have probably heard the word providence, but what gets more play than the word providence is a word I've I've used here. And I've I've tried not to use the word providence even in explaining the nature of Acts 23 up until this point. The word that often gets a lot of play is sovereignty. Rightfully so. It's a word that the scriptures use. It's a word that is illuminated throughout the Bible. This is what sovereignty, and you can give it that. I've got a couple definitions, all right? God's right and power to do all that he decides to do, right? That's a very basic, simple de- definition of sovereignty, right? It's God's, God's, God's right and power because of who he is. God is sovereign over everything. He's God. And we say to that, yes and amen. But if you think of sovereignty as the big umbrella over everything, okay? God is, is able and, and, and willing and does whatever he so chooses because he's God, Okay. Underneath that umbrella of sovereignty is something called providence. In providence, we need to understand because sovereignty, I, I, I can see and I can understand, but yet it still kind of freaks me out a little bit. Anybody else? Like, right? Providence is then the warm blanket that I, as a believer or as a son of God, kind of put on myself to understand the true character and nature of God. Here's what providence is. Providence is the idea that God... 
Not fate or chance or mere human initiative or luck or superstition is preserving the world and causing all things, human decisions and the orbit of plants, just giving you an extreme there, okay, to work together to fulfill his ultimate purposes. Leave that up there. That's a simple definition of what providence is. Charles Spurgeon, he says this about providence. He says, God's providence is nothing more than his goodness in action. Right? So that either freaks you out or comforts you. And if that freaks you out, it's probably because you have a view of God that is one that is scary, terrifying. If that comforts you, 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 you have an understanding of God as good and perfect and holy and as Father. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack that for a second. And I want us to begin to think about providence in light of this. What does it see in this passage? And that's why I went through the thread of God's movement and God's providence toward Paul to fulfill his plan and promise toward him. You see, all of human history is part of God's good plan. Why is it a good plan? Because he's perfectly good. You see, you and I don't get to define what good is. God does. Every tiny, insignificant choice and circumstance of life is part of God's good plan. But you may look at your life like I often do um, and ask the question, um, where is God? Where is God in, in this moment? Right? Have, you, have you ever said the opposite of that? Like having something happen or seeing something, you go, man, God is all over that. You ever said that? I have. Man, God is in that. So question for you as a believer, as a Christ follower, as a disciple, is there ever a moment or anything in your life that God is not intricately involved with? A difference between causation here, okay? Like God has nothing to do with sin. God has nothing to do in terms of evil and instigation. We'll talk about what he does with those things here in a little bit. But back to the question, have you ever said, where is God? Maybe even in the ordinary, right? Like, where is God in this job that I go to every day? The same road I travel, right? I head down 75, I exit Spring Creek. Like, where, where, where is God in this? I see the same people, the same stuff, day after day, week after week, year after year. It all goes by and it seems very boring and monotonous and ordinary. Or maybe you would go, hey, my life has not turned out how I expected Suffering, discouragement, heartache. Where's God in, in that? You see, I filled out my life plan in high school, and I had a trajectory. And I went to college, and in that trajectory somewhere, where's God? Maybe some of you in here, you would say, hey, I, a lot of this pain and wounds, are, they're, they're self-inflicted. I think a lot of you um, think like this, but yet you don't verbally acknowledge it. You say, I've messed up so many things and made so many wrong choices. Like, where is God in my seemingly life of failure? Like, I, I trust that he's sovereign. But, but where is he? Where, where is his providential goodness towards me in that? Also, one of the things that struck me about this passage is about the accusations that Paul gets. And week after week, for at least the last three or four weeks, we have been hearing accusation after accusation 
after accusation, haven't we, against Paul? And they've all been lies, and they've been lies and mistruths. And there have been times where Paul reacts in his flesh sinfully, right? And I'm sure the enemy, the great accuser, reminds him of that and says, oh, you're just like the rest of them responding in your flesh, responding out of anger. And it almost seems like Paul here in these prison cells by himself is without an advocate. You ever feel like that? You're like, I feel like I'm going through this life without an advocate. I feel like I'm struggling through this life. I feel like I'm continuing even falling into this. Sin. And there's, no, like, there's not an advocate. I just feel like I'm just being accused and I'm falling all the time. Listen, one of my favorite descriptions of Christ is this. Is where he is the one who advocates before the Father. For us as believers, right? The, the scriptures talk that he's constantly interceding for us. Hear me. He's constantly interceding on our behalf as our high priest before the Father. Then there is a moment where Jesus steps into a role as an advocate for us. And yes, this happens at the moment of salvation. He steps up and he says, I am their righteousness. I am their goodness. All the charges against them, they are true and they are guilty as charged. However, I am stepping in. I paid the price. I'll pay the penalty. I'll take it on. Now, is that just a one-time, only a one-time transaction? No. So that Jesus continually for you and me as believers keeps going before the Father, advocating on our behalf. Those moments we fall, those moments we falter, those moments we find ourselves again in sin, bound up by He steps up before the Father and goes, listen, don't charge them as guilty again. I'm advocating for them. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Now, does that give you permission to keep on sinning? No. That when you understand Jesus as your advocate, that he advocates perfectly before the Father for you, and that forgiveness comes toward you, here's what you do. You live in light of that. That his advocacy makes me want to run away from my sin. It makes sin bitter and nasty because, listen, he paid the penalty that I should have paid. And so even here in this scene... Paul has an advocate who is before him, who's going before him, making all of these things right, making way, making straight his way to Rome to fulfill his promises. Listen, in your life, believer, you have an advocate who stands before God, advocating on your behalf. In your weakness, his power is perfected. Do you understand that? And it's not just to say, oh, you're okay in your weakness. Stay in your weakness. No, it's he. It's, it's this. It's lean on the strength of Christ. And in him, you will find joy. In him, you will find freedom, right? In your advocate. But the accuser, listen, the enemy of lies, he wants to just accuse you. He just wants to keep you down with all this accusation. And not false accusation, true accusation. But there's a greater word, and that is the word of Christ. The word of the advocate who speaks on your behalf and my behalf. Where is God? Where is Jesus constantly interceding and advocating before the Father for you and for me? You see, we may ask the same thing about these last chapters in Acts. Where is God in the text like today? He's not mentioned by name anywhere. Where's God in these legal trials and nautical details of sea voyage? He's all over it. Believer, hear me, look at me. Disciple, son, daughter, redeemed by the gospel grace of Jesus Christ. Where is God in the ordinariness, in the mundane of your life? He is in every square inch of it. That God guides and leads every boring, exciting, mundane, trivial detail in order to fulfill his promises. 
See, I know we've been hearing a lot about this, the one-year anniversary, right? Or the one year of the pandemic and kind of when things really began to shift. It was one year ago this weekend that we stood in the office, in the corner of our office going with an iPhone at night going, we need to cancel service? Like, what, what is going on? Like, people, what? And then what played out over the last 12 months has affected everyone in this room to some degree or another? For good and some awful. And so I wanted us here in these last moments to think deeply on something. I know that scares some of you, but I want us to think deeply. And I want to ask this question to you. How has God been at work in your life, particularly over this last year? You see, this last year, I feel like it has been very easy to see God's hand at work, but also very, very difficult and confusing. Anyone else there? Like there are moments where I'm like, I, I, God, I can't see anything, but I trust you. And there are moments in these other flashes where I can vividly see his hand question is, is he still moving in both? Absolutely. How has God been at work in your life? Maybe especially where you might have missed him at first glance, even like I did in this text. Even down to the details of how you got here this morning. Why you would sit in that seat with these people. How is God involved in all of that? The Heidelberg Catechism is a question and answer resource, if you will, written in 1563. Long time ago, right? 406 years. And there's a question, and question number 27. And catechisms were written to disciple people in the faith, new believers, mature believers, but the people who would walk through these catechisms, they would, rem- they would memorize the answers. And I want you to look at question number 27. Question number 27 says this. What do you understand by the providence of God? What do, you, what, do you, what do you make of it in common language? What do you make of the providence of God? Even as I've explained, even as I have done my best to show you here in Acts 23 and define it, what do you make by it? And I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism defines it. This is what would have been committed to memory, and I'm trying to do it. This is what they make of it. That the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass and rain and drought fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, pandemic in parties, quarantine in crowd, like whatever. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Leave that up there. Like, do you believe that? That all things don't come by chance or luck or coincidence for the believer. That they come by what? And I love that the author of this just didn't say, just by the hand of God. But he added a description there. His what hand? His fatherly. This 
perfect, loving, holy, just Father's hand. That's what I rest in. That the good Father who calls me son, no merit of my own, but by, his, by the grace of his son, is accomplishing all things for his glory and my good. I think it's where I read Paul in his other letters, like Philippians chapter one, verse six. The same Paul would say this, I am sure of this, or I'm confident of this, right? This is a coffee cup verse. That he who started a good work in you, salvation, will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you believe that? That whatever journey the Lord has you on, he is going to be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul, I will be faithful to bring you and take you to Rome, but it's going to be on my terms. It's going to be on the way in which I walk you through these things. It's going to be through bringing up 40 men who want to kill you and leveraging your young nephew and these evil, wicked rulers and taking an arm, like all those things. He's going, trust me. Trust my providence because I'm, I'm a good father. Or how about Romans eight twenty eight? Listen, we know these things. But here's my fear, especially in the Bible Belt, is that we know the verses, we don't actually functionally believe them. This is where our theology, even in the sovereignty of God, gets flimsy. He says, and we know that for those who love God, right? For those who love God, all things work together. What kind of things? The good, the cupcakes, the great days, the non-anxious moments. No. What things? All things work together for good. Who defines good? God. Who has the perfect picture of what good is? It's not me. It's not you. It's God. We trust him as a father. And this is the thing about providence. Providence is so hard to see, especially in the moment, right? And it's one of those things we have to just trust and believe in faith. God, that you're moving this along by your good hand and your great power for your glory. Because how does Romans 8 end? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to, last two words, his purpose. His purpose. It wasn't Paul's agenda to get to Rome. It was God's agenda. It was God's plan for him to enter into the, 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 the epicenter of the empire. For your life and my life, it is not submitted to our will or our plan or our agenda. As believers, here's what we do with our will and our plan and our agenda. We submit them to him and say, listen, all things work together for good for your plan. Your plan. You're going to work them for your glory and our good. But how hard is it to really walk in light of this? It's hard. <laughs> Listen, this is not one of those sermons you just go, just go get them. Go get them, champ. Go, go, go try harder. No, these things are only accomplished when we come before God, as Tessa said, in the presence of God, in the community of faith with other people, identifying the providence of God and his hand and his movement and his thread when I have so much trouble seeing. 
reminding me that this life is not about me. It's about him. That having a proper perspective on God's providence changes my vantage point. That God's purposes and will does not terminate on me. That God does not just respond. He's not in the responding business. God is in the fulfilling business. And what he is fulfilling is his plan and his promises perfectly. And he's good because he doesn't just sideline us. He's good also because he calls us in to participate with him. And say, listen, when you participate with me, even in jail, you'll know joy. Even in pandemic, because of me and my purposes and my plans, you'll know pleasure. John 10, 10, you'll know life and life to the fullest because of me. Not because I'm busy dispensing everything you want. You'll know life and life to the fullest because you're close to me. You'll know what good is because you're close to me. And so our whole definition gets reworked. Our whole life and our whole vantage point is reworked for the glory of God. That this thing doesn't center on us. It completely centers on a sovereign, providential God who is moving in your life and in this church and in my life. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for moments in scripture like this that I have to confess I have glazed over and glossed over far too many times and not recognized your movement and your faithfulness that your character and your nature is on full display in the ordinary, common seemingly minute details of all things. God, forgive us, forgive me for not recognizing that same thing in my life. Your orchestration and your providence, your goodness and grace on display. God, I ask that you would give us as a church, as disciples, as Christ followers, the kind of faith to trust you and your fatherly hand that is sustaining and moving all things forward according to your will. Give us the kind of faith that trusts your word in Philippians 1, that you will bring our lives to completion that our lives, we would trust Romans 8, 28. That for those who love you, you work all things together for good according to your will and your purpose. Give us the kind of faith to walk in light of that, to live in light of that, to work in light of that, to go to school in light of that, to step out in faith in light of that to suffer well in light of that, to flee from sin in light of that, to face anxiousness in light of that. Jesus, I pray that you would overwhelm us this morning with your character and nature as our advocate, beckoning the Father, perfectly pleading our case, 
so that we can stand one day before him and draw near and not be cast off. God, I pray that in our sin, in falling, in failure, we would run quickly to the cross of Christ. We would repent. We would voice our dependence and not independence from you. Lord, forgive us for our narrow perspective. Holy Spirit, lift our eyes from ourselves, our purposes, our agendas, our plans, our scheming, and lift our eyes to the God of the universe who is sustaining and holding everything together by his power and in his power. God, I pray that today we would get just a glimpse of that glory and that love and that grace and that justice and that mercy. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this community of faith that is wrestling through the deep things of God. This community that longs to know you more and more, to trust you more and more. Keep us on that journey. God, may all of this be done this week for your glory and your fame. It's in your son's beautiful name, in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen and amen.